So we're in Joshua 7 tonight. Um, it's quite a long one. Um, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not make all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put on dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes a lot by lot shall come near by, the cl by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the confidence of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning, <clears throat> and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near the house, his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered, Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. <clears throat> when I saw 
among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. <clears throat> and the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. We've been working through uh, the book of Joshua, and uh, we come to probably what you could describe as the first blip in the storyline. Up until now, things have been going so well for Israel. Uh, victory upon victory. A um, bit of background, first of all. Uh, Israel had, uh, a few chapters ago, just crossed over the mighty River Jordan uh, when it was at its highest flooded plains, and God backed up the water so that the entire people, thousands and thousands, could cross into the promised land. And then we saw a couple of weeks ago how they walked around, the, the army anyway, and the, the Ark of God walked around uh, the, the fortified city of Jericho, and on the seventh day, after going around seven times on that day, the walls fell down and the people of Israel were given a great, um, a great victory. But today, we see in, in this passage here, I don't know if you caught it, the first sign that things are not well. In fact, uh, we're going we're gonna to think about this under three points. Number one, uh, sin in the camp endangers community. Sin in the camp endangers community. Secondly, we're going to see that one person's effect, actions affect the whole. One person's actions affect the whole. And thirdly, and finally, we're going to see that the gospel builds grace-based community of repentance. I'll get to that one last of all. First of all then, sin in the camp endangers the community. We see that through this text here. From the outset, back in verse 1 of chapter 7, we, the readers, are told the problem. And it says there in verse 1 that the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. We know that, but as the story is told by the, the writer, the narrator, that fact is hidden from Joshua and all of Israel until halfway through the story. And so it builds up this sort of uh, tension, if you like, as we're reading through. So Israel, we're told, broke faith. They kept some of the devoted things. Now, this is important because a couple of chapters ago when they went into Jericho, they were told by God before they went in, before they destroyed the city, you shall not take anything from that city. Nothing at all. Don't take anything for yourself. And because someone in the community thought that did not apply to them, we see in verse 1 that the anger of the Lord, the Lord's great anger, burned against Israel. 
And this is how it manifests itself in verses 2 through 5. Joshua sent some spies to the little city, uh, fortified city of Ai. And uh, the, the spies came back and said, you know, this, this is a small town. We can take it easily. We recommend two or even 3,000 at the most are required to come and take this city. And so after a bit of a conflab, yeah, we'll go, we'll go 3,000, we'll go high. They sent 3,000 uh, of the Is- Israelite army. And as we see there, they were overcome. 36 of the Israelites were, were cut down. They turned and fled. They ran back to Israel. They were overcome by this little tiny group of people in this little tiny town of Ai. It was supposed to be an easy victory. Given all they've been through, this one should be a no-brainer. It should be easy. But as it turned out, it was an embarrassing defeat. It was good to see the Premier League starting this weekend, the football. Um, Soon it'll be the FA Cup. And one of the the exciting things about the FA Cup is, is when you get the small teams, the little minnows, taking on the big giants of the Premier League and the, you know, the, the higher leagues. And uh, we love it because occasionally one of these little teams you've never heard of beats one of the giants. We love a good giant killing. Um, and that's why a lot of people love the FA Cup. And that's all very well unless you are the team that gets beat, in which case no one loves a giant killing. And that's exactly what happened here. Israel were the giants. They should have, they should have won. And yet they got defeated by the little minnows of Ai. And it says there at the end in verse 5, I love that little turn of phrase, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The reason I love it is because the hearts of the people of Jericho were once like water. They, were melt- they melted. And now it's the turn of Israel to just pass away, if you like. Their hearts melted. And so we see in verses 6 through 9, following this humiliating defeat, Joshua expresses this profound sorrow. He falls before the ark of God. He, he, he tears his clothes, puts dust on his head. You might think to yourself, my goodness me, there's only, only there's 36 people that were cut down out of an army of 3,000. In terms of percentages, there's not that much. Maybe, maybe, maybe you think that Joshua's response is a bit over the top. <clears throat> but Joshua knew what this meant. He knew that Israel was shown to be weak. He knew that they were sitting ducks, that they appeared to other nations, other cities around them to be prey. They were a marked people. And so he was profoundly sorrowful before God. We can see, and we'll see this later as the sermon goes on, but you can start to see, can't you, how one small, in inverted commas, little sin led to a massive community-endangering consequence. And maybe you know this from real life as well, not just from Joshua chapter 7, but from any organization, really. If you have ever worked with someone who is egotistical, who is full of self-promotion at the expense of others, not only are they horrible people in general, but the effect that they have on the entire organization is remarkable. The effect of such people who are out for their own personal gain and then the effect that has on the wider group, the organization always suffers. Whether that's in the the, the workplace, whether that's in the family, whether it's in the local church, 
whether it's in a not-for-profit charity, even in a sports club, when you get people who are out for themselves, sin endangers community. Sin in the camp endangers community. But up until now in the story, up until verse 9, 10, Israel had no idea why they got so easily beat by this little group of people in Ai. They had no idea. But as we see in verses 10 and following, God revealed to Joshua the problem. And this is interesting. I want to pause right here for a moment because we have to remember that God didn't have to reveal anything to Israel. He didn't have to say anything to Joshua. He could have let Israel remain as sitting ducks. He could have let other nations come upon them, come against them. He could have let his anger burn against these people, rightly so. He's a God of justice. He could have allowed them to be destroyed, whittled down. He could have started again with one person, if he wished. But he didn't. God revealed the source of their sin. And as such, God held out to them mercy. He said to the community of Israel, I'm going to show you your faults. I'm going to show you your sin because I love you and because I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something about it. And so how were things from God's perspective? Well, we see that in verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. That means they have broken, they have fractured the terms of agreement between me and you. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen them. They have lied and they have put them among their own belongings. And that's why, says God, you are so weakened. That's why you can't stand against your enemies. That's why you are a prey now for other towns and other cities around you. God revealed sin in the camp so that he could extend mercy to his people. So that they might be able to deal with the rot and be restored God extended mercy to them so that they could root out the source, they could rip it up, they could chop out the cancer that would overtake them if they were not careful. Sin in the camp endangers community. And nowhere, folks, is this more clear than in the local church. The local church is the new covenant people of God. And in the local church, if there is unchecked sin, it can likewise lead to serious consequences and devastating results. Unchecked or undealt with sin leads to churches that either implode or explode. Churches that do not deal with sin in the camp may implode. An imploding church, by the way, is one that is characterized by infighting, by bickering, by disunity. Eventually, they drift away from their original mission to make a difference for Jesus, to make disciples of all nations. They drift away. They become completely isolated from what's going on out there. An imploding church is closed off to outsiders. They are just so consumed with what's going on inside themselves. And eventually a church like that, eventually left to its own devices, a church like that will collapse in on itself. It will implode. That's one of the 
directions a church will go in if it does not deal with sin. But also, another church likewise might explode. If it tolerates sin, an exploding church permits sin, allows sin, turns a blind eye to sin in the camp. It may end up even affirming sin like it's a good thing. A church like that becomes less like a church and more like the world outside. An exploding church becomes closed off, not to what's outside, but to what's inside the church. It becomes unconcerned with what's happening outside the church. Jesus, to use the words of Jesus, such a church that tolerates sin is like salt that loses its saltiness. It ends up being a nice little club or a charity that just uses God words but is no different from any other club or charity that does not use God words. A church that tolerates sin may either implode upon itself or explode, becoming just like the world. And so you wonder, don't you, in the local church, of which this is one form, you wonder why we don't deal with sin more clearly than we should, more carefully than we should, because there is so much at stake, isn't there? It seems to be almost on a monthly basis, several times a year at the very least. I hear of church splits frequently happening in in Northern Ireland. Churches splitting from each other because of disunity or sin in the camp. I think there are more church splitting going on these days than there is church planting. And this is disastrous for the church's witness to the world and its mission. It's disastrous to the reputation of Jesus. Sin in the camp is why many churches become irrelevant, why they become powerless, why they become indistinct from the world, why they eventually die. Because they do not learn the lesson of Joshua 7. Sin in the camp endangers community. So let's move on now. We're sort of going from the the general concept of of the problem of sin in the camp to the specific way that works out. And the second part I want to look at now is one person's actions affect the whole. One person's actions affect the whole. Do you notice there was one sin, effectively, that Achan did? There's one infraction of the law, and he was one man, and yet because of his sin... He dragged the whole people of Israel under God's curse. Just imagine now, we we know, the reader knows from verse 1 that it's Achan. We know what he's done. He's taken the devoted things he shouldn't have taken from from Jericho. No one else knows that. Imagine the scene then. God says to Joshua, the great leader of Israel, uh, I'm going to select publicly and declare demonstrate publicly before all of your eyes who it is that has brought this shame on the community. And so they decide, or God God says rather, I'm going to cast lots. And so first of all, representatives from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 major groupings in Israel are brought before Joshua. 
and the tribe of Judah is selected by lots. It's kind of like throwing a dice. The lot falls on Judah. And then the various, tri the various um, clans within Judah are selected and the Zerahites are taken aside. And then within the Zerahites, the various families are selected and the family of Zabdi is taken. And then within the family of Zabdi, the household of Achan is whittled down. All of Israel, watch this. All of Israel can see who it is. And eventually he's caught. Eventually it says uh, in verse 19, Achan confesses. Why did he leave it to the last minute? Or rather, when he, when he was found out, why didn't he confess earlier? We don't know. Maybe he hoped to hide. Maybe he hoped to avoid the consequences of his sin. Maybe he thought, there's got to be someone else who's done worse than me. But as the lots came closer and closer, as it selected his household out, and then suddenly, him, he was exposed. He puts his hand up, okay, okay, he says, I, I confess. I did take that stuff after all. Did a bit of research about the price of gold and silver on, on the internet this week, and I found that, uh, uh, what is it, 200 shekels of silver in today's money would be about 800 pounds. Uh, what's the other bit? 50 shekels of gold will be about 1,600 pounds. And this beautiful cloak from Shinar, let's say, add it all together, about 3,000 pounds. That's how much, roughly in today's market, the value of these goods were that he stole. But as I said to you a few moments ago, God made it clear, don't take anything from Jericho. And anything means anything. End of. But obviously for Achan, he thought that that rule didn't apply to him. No doubt he tried to justify his sin to himself. He probably sat and thought of reasons why that law didn't apply to him. It's only a small amount. Who's going to miss it? What harm can it do if I just take these things and use them in the open market? God's really being quite unfair here. Why is he withholding this blessing from me? I'm just going to take it anyway. No one will notice. I've worked hard. I deserve it. No one else works as busy, as, as hard as I do. No doubt he tried to justify his sin to himself. But while it appeared to him to be a small sin, it had massive consequences, as we have seen already. It might have been small in his eyes, but it threatened to sink the entire community. And so it goes on to tell us that they took him outside the camp. They took him to the Valley of Achor, which means trouble, the Valley of Trouble. And all Israel, it says, picked up stones to stone him to death. Not just him, but his entire family, and all of their belongings were stoned and burned and stoned again, just for good measure. All Israel were effectively saying, you are not one of us. You took yourself out of the covenant. You are no longer part of God's blessed people. Maybe you think that's a bit unfair. I mean, maybe, maybe, you think, well, fair enough, he, he stole the goods. He should be punished, but not his family. Not his livestock. Why them? Well, the text doesn't tell us 
who else was to blame? It says that the stuff was hidden in their household. So we don't know who knew of this, who were guilty by association. But that's not really the point. The point with Achan is it shows us that one person's actions affect the whole. God treated all Israel as guilty. But today we have in our society, in our own generation, a dislike of the idea that we can be influenced or told what to do by other people's decisions, other people's choices. We like to think and we behave as if we are masters of our own destiny. I choose what is right for me and no one else gets to have that say. There's a great quote from a movie about a boy which came out in 2002, which to me feels like just the other day. Um, but for some of you younger ones, that's like a, a generation ago. But at the start of the, uh, the movie, the character played by Hugh Grant, uh, a guy called Will, uh, just goes on this monologue about how great his life is and how it's just wonderful being a man on his own. Yeah, this is what he says. He says, uh, you've heard it said that no man is an island. But in my opinion, he says, all men are islands. And what's more, now is the time to be one. This isn't island age, he says. A hundred years ago, you had to depend on other people. No one had TV or CDs or DVDs or videos or home espresso makers. Actually, they didn't have anything cool. Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. With the right supplies and the right attitudes, you can be a sun-drenched tropical island, a magnet for young Swedish tourists. And I like to think that perhaps I am that kind of island. I like to think I'm Ibiza. That film character, Will, actually lives an incredibly isolated and unhappy life as the story goes on. And it's only when he realizes that he is not an island, he's not Ibiza, that he is in fact deeply connected to many other people in community, only when he realizes that, he realizes and receives enrichment in his life. His life is enhanced. It is protected. And we live in a generation of people who want to live like they are Ibiza, driven primarily by what's right for me. My desires come first. But as we see in the character in About a Boy, as we see in the life of Achan and his family, life does not work like that. We cannot live in isolation protected from other people's influence on us. Instead, we are all connected for better or worse. That means that evil actions in our families, in our communities, impact us. But the reverse is also true. Beautiful, selfless actions positively impact the surrounding forms of community. Israel were almost destroyed because of one man's evil. But in the gospel, people are saved because of one man's supreme act of love. Achan, as we read, coveted. He loved himself. And his selfishness almost led to Israel's downfall. Jesus, on the other hand, did not covet. He did not snatch 
He laid down his life. He made himself nothing. Achan loved himself at the expense of his people. Jesus loved his people at the expense of himself. Like Achan, Jesus was taken outside the camp, outside the city of Jerusalem, and he was executed. One man for the people. Achan unwillingly died so that Israel might be saved. Jesus willingly died so that we might be saved. Achan deserved his fate. He was guilty and he admitted it. Jesus was perfectly sinless. He was fully obedient to God's law. He was the model son of the father. He was the model Israelite. And yet he died a death. We think it's unfair that Achan's family died with him. But he represented them. Because of his relationship to them, they went where he went. They went where his sins took him, which was to the grave. But you see, in the gospel, by that same mechanism, we go where Christ takes us. Jesus represents us. He's the head of our family. And he took our sins for us. He took them to the cross. So we can see that one person's actions affect the whole. Not just in Achan's story, but in ours. Your sin has consequences. Not just to yourself, as bad as they may be. But your sin has consequences on your closest relationships. On your family. Your sin has consequences in your church. It has consequences of, in life in general, of course. Your mess-ups travel with you. They're like drops of black ink in a glass of pure water. It just spreads. Impacts. Your sin can fundamentally endanger the communities that you are a part of. Maybe not overnight, maybe not necessarily suddenly. That weakening effect will be there. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' work runs deeper, it goes further, and it is expressed more fully than any sin or sinning that you have done. The Bible says that your sins and my sins are like scarlet. That is deeply stained. You might be a complex mess. The effect of your sin might pass along for generations, but it says, because of Jesus, you are made as white as snow. That's the gospel. It says that no matter what, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how deeply buried your sins are, no matter how selfish you are, no matter, no matter how manipulative you have been, Christ and his work is better and bigger than all that. 
and it is yours by faith. No longer scarlet, stained, pure instead, like the driven snow. We've seen that sin in the camp endangers community. We've seen how one person's actions affects the whole. And that's good news. Thirdly and finally, I want to try and show how the gospel, this good news we've been talking about, builds grace-based community of repentance. Bit of a mouthful. The gospel builds grace-based community of repentance. This is fundamental. Fundamental. And I'll show you why in a few moments. The text has shown us the severe problems that we as a community will experience if we leave sin in the camp unaddressed. And may this be a warning to us as a church, as Foundation Church, we are, we are small, we are new, and yet may this be a warning to us now. Let us take the lesson from Joshua 7 now so that we may be on our guard. How do we deal with sin in the camp here at Foundation Church? Well, let me give you two options to rule out straight away. First of all, option number one, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do nothing. We're not going to leave sin. We're not going to neglect sin here. We're not going to bury our heads in the sand. We're not going to pretend it's not there. We're not going to allow our sins to go unchecked. Worse still, we are not going to give our blessing to them. We're not going to affirm what God clearly says is wrong in his word. And we've seen already that churches do that, lose their distinctness. They lose their saltiness. They're no longer a light in the darkness and churches like that will die off slowly. In the eyes of Jesus, they're already dead. So we're not going to do nothing. Second option here at Foundation Church to build this grace-based community of repentance. We're not going to come down hard on you, one another. We're not going to become a kind of church that is so worried, so frozen, that we call absolutely everything out. The minor infringements. Pastors are not going to become secret police. Members of the church are not going to become informants. We are going to be and continue to be a people united in love by the gospel. Whereas the first option that we're not going to do, do nothing, leads to license. Everything goes. The second option, number two, leads to legalism. Nothing goes. And we're not going to do either of them because both options will lead to a dead church. So what option are we going to take when it comes to dealing with sin in the camp? Number three, we are going to deal with sin in a biblical way, which is through biblical church discipline. That's what we're going to do here at Foundation Church. Biblical because it's informed by the gospel. It is underpinned by grace and it arises from a repenting community. We are going to build here at Foundation Church a culture of repentance. What does that mean? What does it mean? As we've seen in the gospel, it means all people have sinned, you, me, and everyone else sat in this room, and yet we are justified, we are saved, we are set free by grace because of Christ. We all have different struggles. We all have different experiences, but none of us are saved by being good and nice people. We are all saved by grace. 
And so we are going to build a grace-based community of repentance. We are going to help one another turn to Jesus. That's what repentance is. Not just that thing we do the moment we first trust in Christ, as amazing as that is. Repentance is that thing, that lifestyle that we do, the way we live day by day, constantly turning back to Jesus. And that's what we're going to help each other do here at Foundation Church. We are going to build and foster that here. That's why we have church membership. That's why we have this covenant relationship with one another. We enter into that covenant relationship with one another in membership. We hold one another accountable. It's a community of grace. And so when we see a fellow member wandering or embracing sin, we love them enough to address it. That's what we do here. At one level, most commonly, that's going to be at the one-to-one conversational level. Addressing sin, concerns, questions in one another's lives. It might start like this. Look, I am just concerned for you, my friend, my brother or sister. It might start like this. I could be wrong, but I've seen something in your life I just think we should talk about. Usually these are things that are observed in one another's lives. Occasionally, they are things given to us by revelation through prophecy, like what happened to Joshua. But most often it's what we observe in one another's lives. And going to a brother or sister, a fellow member of the church, takes guts, it takes love, it takes trust. But the point is this, we're aiming to apply the gospel deeper, to develop our community through repentance and restoration. By the way, if you are that person that someone comes to, if someone comes to you and says, brother, friend, sister, I see something in your life, don't brush it off. Don't don't minimize it. Don't try and justify whatever it is that they see in your life, like Achan probably did. If a brother or sister, a fellow church member comes to you with a concern or a query, listen to them. Please listen to them. Consider what they're saying. Take it to heart. Think it through. Examine yourself. We are all under grace, helping one another turn to Jesus. And it's fundamental, this culture of repentance, because it affects our discipleship, it affects our evangelism, it affects our ministries of mercy, where people hear and see and feel the gospel. It affects all area of church ministry. That's why it's fundamental. I'm just going to bring things to a close. And in a few moments as a church, uh, those of us who are members, we are going to reaffirm our membership covenant with one another. It's a, a document that we have and uh, it's a number of statements that we take on every time someone comes into membership. But from time to time, uh, we read it out together before we come to the communion to remind ourselves of what it is that we have agreed to, to affirm once again those great promises. So we can do that in a few moments. Before we do that, um, maybe there is some area in your life, maybe, maybe personally, there is some area in your life as you sit and hear this account of Achan, 
some sin that you have minimized that you need to deal with right now. Maybe there's some area of your life that you are neglecting. You know it's wrong, but you're just turning your head the other way. Maybe there's some area in your life that you are withholding from God. You're saying to him, you can have these bits over here, but this part here, you're not touching that. Is there some hidden sin known only to you that you've hung on to? If there is, we have a few moments to confess that in a bit. Maybe as a group within the church, there's a conversation that you need to have with someone, perhaps. Maybe you need to be bold to open up so that you can build into this grace-based community of repentance that we are trying to build here. Maybe that's you. If you're not a member of Foundation Church, then let me ask you this. Who is it that holds you accountable for your Christian life to this level? Who is it that's going to get alongside you if there's sin in your life? Or if you're wondering, who's going to come and have that conversation with you? Who is committed to your growth in grace in Jesus? If you're not a member here at Foundation Church and uh, that's something you're interested in, uh, I'd love to guide you through that process and take you through that. As I said uh, a few moments ago, uh, we're going to stand now. Well, I didn't say that bit, but we are going to stand. So why don't you stand with me just now? And uh, for those of you who are members already here at Foundation Church, we're going to read out together this um, membership covenant to remind ourselves just on the basis of what we've heard already tonight, to refresh ourselves on those commitments and promises we've made to one another. As we do that, and after we've done that, we're going to then come to a time of, of communion, um, so let's stand together, everybody. And if you're not a member, that's okay. You can just.